All right, if you'll start making your way back to your seats. As you do, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 12. If you're visiting with us, we're so glad that you're here. I'll echo what Pastor Jesse said. Uh, So thankful to have you with us. My name is Pastor Michael. I'm privileged to serve as lead pastor here at Newbreed Church. We're so glad, excuse me, that you're with us. We are coming to the end of a series through the book of Nehemiah. We've been in it for a couple months now, a series that we've entitled Faith That Moves You Forward. Uh, we've been taking a chapter at a time, and this, this morning we're going to look at chapter 12. I'm not going to read it in its entirety, but I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's Word, and I want to begin reading in Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 27. Nehemiah chapter 12, beginning in verse 27. Hear what Nehemiah writes. He says, At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sent for the Levites wherever they lived and brought them to Jerusalem to celebrate the joyous dedication with thanksgiving and singing. Accompanied by cymbals, harps, and lyres, the singers gathered from the region around Jerusalem, from the settlements of the Nedophathites, from Beth Gilgal, from the fields of Geba and Asmaveth. For they had built settlements for themselves around Jerusalem. And after the priests and the Levites had purified themselves, they purified the people, the city gates, and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up on top of the wall. And I appointed two large processions that gave thanks. Now jump to chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. It says, At that time the book of Moses was, was read publicly to the people. The command was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God because they did not meet the Israelites with food and water. Instead, they hired Balaam against them to curse them. But our God turned the curse into a blessing. And this morning, I want us to consider this idea of a faith that worships. Faith that worships. Let's go before the Lord. Heavenly Father, God, I ask that you would give me grace to preach your word to your people. Lord, give me physical and spiritual strength. I pray that this would not just be something that we do every Sunday morning. It wouldn't just be another mundane act, but that we would recognize the weight and the blessing of sitting under your word. And we give you all the praise and all the glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Got it. Thank you. A faith that worships So some of you might have a similar story, but I have been privileged to have grown up in the church. Uh, some of my earliest memories involved the church or people who were connected to the church. I'd be hard-pressed to tell you of a time in my life when the church was not in some way, shape, or form an intimate part of my life. Some of the best moments in my life have taken place in the church. And if I'm honest this morning, some of the most difficult moments in my life have been connected to the church. I'm a person who's been shaped by the church. But more than that, I've actually been privileged to train for ministry 
in the church. Let's be honest, I'm still being trained for ministry in the church. Y'all keep me on my toes. Praise God. All right. Yeah, I went to seminary. I got the degrees. I went back to seminary, and I'm deciding to get another degree. But the lessons that have shaped my, my ministry the most, the lessons that have had the biggest impact on me as a pastor are lessons that I learned in the church. One of those lessons I, relearn, I, I remember vividly to this day. So it was my first actual vocational ministry assignment. In other words, it was the first time I was getting paid to do ministry, which is a glorious thing, I, I have to admit. I was serving as a worship and youth uh, minister at a church in South Carolina. Very different context, the context that we're in now. And if I'm honest with you, all I wanted to do was to play music for the glory of God. And I just happened to get a paycheck for it. That's, I would have been content if all I ever did in the church was just grab my guitar, sing some songs, play music. Some of y'all are like, you play music? I do. I do. You just don't hear it because I'm not as good as them. But I can do it in a pinch. But all I ever wanted to do was play music. But the leadership at that time saw something in me that I had yet to see, and they pushed me to train more intentionally for pastoral ministry. In some ways, that's the beauty of the church, right? Other people saw things in me that God hadn't revealed to me, and so they pushed me. And so I entered a program for a few years at the church where I was being trained for ministry. It was intense. I mean, it was basically me and, and one other guy, and we would meet with the pastors and um, and the other elders regularly. We were taught theology. We were taught Hebrew and Greek. We were taught to preach, and he put us in the pulpit, and we failed miserably, and then he would correct us and put us right back in the pulpit and make us do it again. I was trained in the church. I got to see a lot of the inner workings. I got to sit and observe elders' meetings and leadership in very intentional ways, and they were training me for a future ministry they believed in, but I hadn't realized yet. Now, the reason I said earlier that it was very different than our context is it was an interesting church, to say the least. Uh, it was a very insular church. They were very focused on what was going inside and not so much on the community uh, around them. They struggled to look outside of the walls of the church. It was a church of a few hundred people, but here's what made it interesting. It was originally started by homeschool families who wanted a place to worship with other homeschool families. I'm not knocking homeschooling. I wish I was in a boat where I could homeschool. It's just not in the cards for us right now. But it was a church of a few hundred people. So I'm a youth pastor with a youth group of about, a youth minister, I'm sorry, of, of, a, of, a, of a youth group of about 55 students, and two of them were in a public school system. Everybody else was homeschooled. Very interesting dynamic, to say the least. But the leadership... The leadership understood the call of the church to be salt and light. Stick with me, I'm going somewhere with this. They understood the call to be a witness to the world. And so the leadership, the pastors, were pushing the church to engage the community. They desired the leadership to see the church reach the lost, but specifically one of the local high schools that was about a block away from the church. So there were initiatives started, there were outreach events, the leadership was doing everything they could do to try to get the church to engage in the mission of reaching the lost. And despite, despite all these plans and all these attempts, the church just wasn't buying in. Whenever we had an outreach at the high school, it was just staff and leaders at the church who showed up. No one from the church would show up to these outreach events. And it, it happened week after week after week. And so it was tough. And so I remember sitting in... Uh, elders meeting, getting to observe 
as the pastors talked, and the lead pastor said this. He said, I think I'm going to address this struggle in the sermon next week and challenge the church to get a little bit more serious about the mission of reaching the community. Now, when he said this, I'll be up front. I was nervous because I'd seen this done before in churches. Remember, I grew up in churches. I have seen pastors weaponize the pulpit to try to shame church members into doing more, into volunteering more, and into serving more. Even a few months prior, timing was perfect, just a few months before this pastor said this, I was leading worship for another church, a smaller church that needed some help one Sunday, and so I went and led worship, and, and this church was in a very similar boat. They, they were trying to engage the community, they were struggling to do that, and the pastor had preached a message, which if, I, if I'm being transparent, I wasn't even a member of the church, but I walked away feeling guilty that I wasn't serving this church that I wasn't a part of. And towards the end of that service, I'll never forget it, that other pastor said, and he said it really mean, he said, after this service, I'm going to be in the back, because it's one of those old school churches, there's one way in, one way out, so you had to walk by the pastor, right? Here you got a couple ways to escape without us seeing you, not at this church. And he said, I'm going to be in the back, and I'm going to have a clipboard, and this is what he said, and if you care about Jesus, you'll sign up on this clipboard to volunteer at the church. So I sat in the back of the church because I'm curious. I just kind of posted up on the back pew. I was like, I want to see what happens. And I watched as person after person walked head down, sign their name, write their phone number. I'll do better, pastor, and walk out. I often wondered what happened to that church. They're not there today, but I wonder what happened after that. So needless to say, when our pastor said, I'm going to address this from the pulpit I got a little nervous because I'm thinking, man, this is going to be another guilt-ridden, shame-filled message that tries to manipulate people into serving. And it, that says more about me than it does this pastor who was serving faithfully because I'll never forget that sermon. He got up on Sunday morning. All week, I'd been worried about this. I was already prepping in my head what I was going to say when this went bad. And he got up and he preached a message from Ephesians 4 regarding walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. But what was amazing to me is at no point did he lay guilt on people, did he shame people. He did one thing. He sought to make Jesus look beautiful. And he called the church to unceasing worship. So after the end of that message, I went up to him and I just had to confess, I was like, Pastor, I'm sorry. I thought you were going to do something else. I thought you were going to manipulate. I thought you were going to try to force people to, to do this. And he said something that has stuck with me to this day. And he said, Michael, if God's people are ever going to be faithful, it begins and ends with worship. And so my goal isn't to get people to do more stuff. My goal is to help the people worship. And what he understood, that truth that has laid a foundation for so much of my ministry, is that if we are going to have a faith that is moving forward, a faith that is growing and being sanctified, it has to be a faith that worships. And what we see in our text this morning, what we see in Nehemiah 12, is a faith that is moving forward as it worships. Now, I got to give you a little disclaimer before we get into it. We're coming to the end of the book of Nehemiah. 
Uh, we have this week and one more week, and then we're done with the book of Nehemiah. One of the things that gets difficult, giving you a little pastoral insight, the other pastors know is when you preach through a book of the Bible, is Aaliyah calls it the red thread, right? In every book of the Bible, there's a red thread that runs from beginning to end. There are themes in the book, and you get those themes over and over and over. Here's why I'm telling you this. I'm not going to give you anything novel this morning. I'm not giving you anything new. I'm going to talk to you about the same thing that we've been talking about. One of the brothers in the church, I won't tell you who, I asked if I could share the story. He said, okay. I, one of you said, what are we going to talk about? I said, we're going to talk about God's faithfulness. And he said again, and I said, I got nothing better to talk about than the faithfulness of God. Because here's what I know. We are a people. I am a person who is prone to forget the faithfulness of God. Day in and day out, I can see my circumstances. I can see my struggle. I can see my heartache and forget that God is still faithful. And so I'm going to tell you up front, we're going to talk about the faithfulness of God. I'm going to preach it again, believing that we need it again. So this morning, there are three aspects to the worship of God's people in Nehemiah 12 that I want to draw your attention to. You could say that in their worship, there are three directions the people look as they worship that promote praise and worship in their lives. So here's the first place they look. They look at God's past faithfulness. They look at God's past faithfulness faithfulness. So here's where we left off in Nehemiah. The people of God at this point have rebuilt the walls to the city. They've completed the physical restoration of the walls, but now they're in the midst of a spiritual restoration. They've been reading from the law. They've been confessing sin. They've been obeying the word of God. And in chapter 11, last week, the people of God have now begun to resettle in Jerusalem. Do you remember that? Everybody playing a part in the restoration. Uh, Because remember, the walls are built But as we learned in Nehemiah 7.4, the city is still large and spacious. There are few people in it and there are no houses that have been built yet. So what we saw in chapter 11 last week is that one-tenth of the people, so 10% of the people, are selected by lot to actually move back into the city and to repopulate Jerusalem. The rest of the people are in towns and settlements and villages that surround Jerusalem. But only a small amount of the population is actually in Jerusalem. And in Nehemiah 11, we see beginning in verse 4 and running through the end of the chapter, a list of those people who were, who were in the city, and we see a list of the towns and the villages and the settlements that were occupied by the rest of the people of God. And as you transition into chapter 12, there in verse 1, it's almost as if, almost as if, That Nehemiah is just continuing a list of people who are in Jerusalem. But in fact, something very different is taking place. So look at verse 1 of chapter 12. We read this. These are the priests and the Levites who went up with Zerubbabel, son of Sheatiel, and with Jeshua, Saraiah, Jeremiah, and Ezra. So what Nehemiah is actually doing is he's no longer listing people who are currently in the city. He's not necessarily listing people who are currently settled around the city. What Nehemiah is doing as a precursor to their corporate worship and the dedication of the wall that's about to take place is he's looking back at the people who had come before him. And so in verses 1 through 26 of chapter 12, he records the history of the priests and the Levites who returned beginning nearly 80 years before Nehemiah ever stepped foot in Jerusalem. He recounts those who have been a part of the restoration of Israel before this moment. He recounts 22 
of the 24 priestly families established by King David who returned and were willing to do the initial work of rebuilding the temple and then stay in Jerusalem. Now that might not mean much to you, but stay with me here. The significance of this event or of this of Nehemiah recording this is that every one of those people is telling a story of God's past faithfulness. Let me try to give you an example of what I mean. Look at verses 10 and 11. It says this, Jeshua fathered Joachim. Joachim fathered Eliashib. Eliashib fathered Joada. Joada fathered Jonathan. And Jonathan fathered Jedua. Now those might seem like an innocuous list of names there, but those names are significant because those are the names of all of the high priests who have come. Now, in case you forgot, the high priest is the person who's kind of overall in charge of the temple. He's the one who oversees the sacrifices. He oversees the singers and and the ones who are reading the law. He oversees the other priests. These are the people who offered sacrifices before God on behalf of the people. And the first three high priests that he mentions are very significant, each one of them telling us a story about God's faithfulness. Let me try to break it down for you. So the first one you have is Jeshua. Jeshua is first. Jeshua was the high priest when they first returned from exile to Jerusalem. This is about 80 years before Nehemiah shows up, when Zerubbabel led the people of God back to Jerusalem to begin the process of first rebuilding the temple. They were in exile because of their unfaithfulness. They were under the judgment of God. They were in captivity because of their sin. But Jeshua is a testimony that God's faithfulness is a delivering faithfulness. Right, That when you are trapped, when, when there is no way out, when you have no way to worship God on your own, God can make a way where there is no way. Jeshua is another testimony of what we see time and time again throughout Scripture, that God is faithful to deliver. We've seen it, right? God delivered Joseph from the pit. God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. God delivered David from a giant and a foreign army. God delivered David from a domestic enemy in King Saul. God delivered Daniel from the lion's den. And Jeshua is in a long line of testimonies that time and time again, God has proven himself faithful to deliver. Our God is faithful. But there's more. Because after him, you have Joachim. Now, he was the high priest during much of Ezra's day. So there are three returns to Jerusalem. You have Zerubbabel leading the first group. You have Ezra leading the second group. And you have Nehemiah leading the third group. And so Jehoiakim was the high priest during much of Ezra's day. He bridges the gap between Zerubbabel leading the first exiles in 537 B.C. and Nehemiah leading the third group of exiles in 445 B.C. But Jehoiakim had a rough go as a high priest. Because under his leadership, while they're in Jerusalem, experiencing the deliverance of God, the priests and the Levites under him start engaging in the same behavior that sent them into exile in the first place. They're ignoring the law of God. They are marrying people who worship differently than them. I mean, just listen to what Ezra says about the situation in Ezra 9, verses 6 through 10. He says, my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face toward you, my God. 
Because our iniquities are higher than our heads and our guilt is as high as the heavens. Our guilt has been terrible from the days of our ancestors until the present. Because of our iniquities, we have been handed over along with our kings and priests to the surrounding kings and to the sword, captivity, plundering, and open shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment, grace has come from the Lord our God to preserve a remnant for us and give us a stake in his holy place, even in our slavery. God has given us a little relief and light to our eyes. Though we are slaves, our God has not abandoned us in our slavery. He has extended grace to us in the presence of the Persian kings, given us relief so that we can rebuild the house of God and repair its ruins, to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Now, our God, what can we say in light of this? For we have again abandoned the commands. Jehoiakim's ministry as high priest and the fact that they are still in the land, despite returning to the sin that led them into exile in the first place is a testimony of God's faithfulness. Jehoiakim is a testimony that God's faithfulness is not only a delivering faithfulness, it's a preserving faithfulness. Let me give it to you another way. He will keep you when you cannot keep yourself. But there's even more. Because next you have Eliashib. He's the third high priest. And Eliashib is the high priest. At that moment, he's the high priest while Nehemiah is doing all that Nehemiah is doing. He is leading worship as the temple as Nehemiah speaks. And the life of Eliashib is a testimony to us as well because Eliashib is a testimony that not only is God's faithfulness a delivering faithfulness, not only is God's faithfulness a preserving faithfulness, but God's faithfulness is a restoring faithfulness. Because under Nehemiah's governing leadership and Eliashib's spiritual leadership, not only has physical restoration been taking place, but spiritual restoration has taken place as well. We are watching God not only restore a city, but restore a people to himself. I mean, it's amazing what we've seen in the past few chapters. The people are falling in love with God's word again. They're falling in love with God's command again. They're falling in love with the covenant again. The people are being restored by the spirit of God at work through the word of God. And all of this Because God is faithful, because God has delivered them, because God has kept them, and because God has restored them. And they look back at God's past faithfulness as the foundation of their worship. Are you with me this morning? Because I said all of that and it didn't seem to do much in anybody. Right? I mean, I'm just being honest. And I get it because for some of us in this room, though we may not say it out loud, we are tempted to believe that we are the center of the story. The reason that God's faithfulness so often doesn't move us to worship in the here and now is because deep down we believe that we got to where we are all by ourselves. You don't have to say amen. I know it's true. You believe that your degree got you that job or that your charm got you that family or that your morality got you that salvation. But what I'm trying to get you to see this morning is the reason you are where you are, the reason you made it to this place this morning to sing these songs and to pray these prayers and to hear this word is because God has been faithful to you. God has delivered you from some stuff you didn't even know you needed deliverance from. God has held on to you each and every time you have let go of him. And God has restored some things in your life that you thought were broken beyond repair. And some of us think we got here because we got it all together. But I came to tell you this morning, church, that you are a product of the grace of God. That you are a product of the mercy of God. That you are a product and a testimony of the ever-present, never-changing faithfulness of God. 
And if we are going to have a faith that worships, it will require that we constantly look back at God's past faithfulness and praise Him for what He has done. I love you, but you're not the center of the story. God's faithfulness is the center of your story. But what I want you to see this morning is that's not the only place that they look. They don't only look back at God's past faithfulness, but they also look at God's present faithfulness. So watch this. After Nehemiah reflects looking back, he then focuses his praise on the present moment. Let me show you. Look with me again, beginning in verse 27. It says, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sent for the Levites wherever they lived and brought them to Jerusalem to celebrate the joyous dedication with thanksgiving and singing accompanied by cymbals, harps, and lyres. The singers gathered from the region around Jerusalem, from the settlements of the Netophathites, from from Beth Gilgal and from the fields of Geba and Asmaveth, for they had built settlements for themselves around Jerusalem. After the priests and the Levites had purified themselves, they purified the people, the city gates, and the wall. Then I brought leaders of Judah up to the top of the wall, and I appointed two large processions and gave thanks. One went to the right of the wall toward the dung gate. Now jump down to verse 38. The second Thanksgiving procession went to the left, and I followed it with half the people along the top of the wall, past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, above the Ephraim gate, and by the old gate, the fish gate, the tower of Hanel, the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate. They stopped at the gate of the guard. The two Thanksgiving processions stood in the house of God, and so did I and half of the officials accompanying me. Now go to verse 43. On that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them joy. The women and children also celebrated and Jerusalem's rejoicing was heard. It was heard from far away. So here's what's going on. They are dedicating the wall to God. They're praising God for the present faithfulness of God that they are experiencing. They organize two groups of people. So this is what Nehemiah does, what the leadership does. They organize two groups of people, one on the right side, one on the left side. And what they do is they stand on top of the wall and they are progressing towards the temple, which will be the culmination of their praise. So they're basically marching around the walls of the city to the temple. And verse 43 is significant. On that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. The women and the children also celebrated and Jerusalem's rejoicing was heard far away. So this is a time, right, that's marked by present joy. Now let me, let me break that down a little bit. That word joy is actually very significant in the Old Testament. See, in the Hebrew, the Old Testament word for, for joy is, is simha. It's used five times, five times in verses 43 and 44. Now, in the Old Testament, that word for joy or rejoicing is used one of four ways, and it depends on the context what it means. So that can either mean joyfulness attributed to a national gathering or a celebration. 
So a joy basically is the people of God come together to be obedient to days of atonement, to the festival of booths. It can be a joy that comes with national gatherings, but it can also be a joy in the character or activity of God. So it's a joy in just who God is and what he's doing. Third, it can actually be a wicked word, meaning when someone rejoices or gloats over someone in a sinful way. But the fourth way that that word is used is it is a joyful anticipation in the future. Now, here's why I point that out. Dr. T.J. Betts is actually helpful in that he says what's amazing is that in this text, three of the four uses are in play. This is what he says. He says, first, the dedication of the wall is a national gathering where the people offer great sacrifices and rejoice. Second, the source of that great joy is God. But third, the dedication of the wall is looking to God's protection moving ahead. Here's what I'm trying to get you to see. They are praising God collectively as the people of God for what God is doing at that very moment. Now stay with me here, okay? They are literally standing on the wall. They are standing on the evidence of God's present faithfulness. Because remember back to verse, or to chapter six, right? Chapter six, verses 15 and 16, it says, the wall was completed in 52 days and on the 25th day of the month of Lul. And when all the enemies heard this, all the surrounding nations were intimidated and they lost their confidence. Why? For they realized that this task had been accomplished by our God. They are standing on the faithfulness of God. And as a result, they are praising God for what he is doing right now. Listen to me, church. Our worship should not only be based on what God has done. Our worship is also based on what God is doing right now. But let's be honest this morning, okay? Sometimes that's hard for us to do. It is easier. Can we be honest? It is easier to look back at finished things And say, look how faithful God is. But sometimes the reason it's so difficult for us to praise God in the present is because we have to praise him for tasks that aren't done yet. But don't miss this. They're praising God for the walls being built, even though the city is still a mess. The work isn't finished. They still need homes. They still need people. They still need commerce. This is not a thriving city. And yet still, they praise God for what he is doing at that moment, even though the job isn't finished. Why? Well, because sometimes something as simple as a wall is a testimony of something greater to come. If God can rebuild the walls today, he can rebuild that relationship tomorrow. If God can rebuild the walls today, he can restore that broken heart tomorrow. If God can rebuild the walls today, he can help me find that job tomorrow. If God is rebuilding walls today in your life, it means that he who began a good work will be faithful to see it to completion. And while we look back, we can't miss what God is doing right now because notice this, their joy isn't dependent on their circumstances. They're still not a thriving nation. The reproach of Jerusalem has not been fully removed yet. They're still a mess, but their joy doesn't depend on any of that. It's in shambles, but because they can see God's faithfulness in some rock stacked up, they say, we have a joy and we're going to shout it. And the people in the surrounding areas heard their praise. 
Church, if we're going to have a faith that worships, then each and every day, you and I got to find some walls to stand on and say it might not be done yet, but this wall is a testimony that neither is God. So I'm going to praise him today for what he's doing. And church, hear this. Sometimes our sweetest moments of worship will come by recognizing what God is doing now even if the process isn't finished yet. And if we fail to worship today, we're missing the blessing of God. This wasn't in my notes, but you know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of Luke 17. Y'all remember Luke 17 with the 10 lepers? The 10 lepers? So Jesus is out. I don't remember exactly where he is. I didn't plan it. I didn't do the research. So bear with me here, all right? He's out and 10 lepers come. And I remember what they say to Jesus, though. They're lepers. They're outcasts. Nobody can touch them. They're not a part of society. And they say, have mercy on us, son of God. And Jesus takes these 10 lepers and he says, go to the temple and present yourself to the priest. Now, this is what's crazy. All 10 of them start heading to the temple. And it's not until they're on their way, the Bible says that they realize they're cleansed. Now, that's significant. But the job's not done yet. Because you know what the purification was for someone with leprosy? Like, it's, it's intense in the Old Testament. So if you were a leper, outcast, and untouchable, and you believed that you were cleansed of your leprosy, which could happen, what you had to do is you had to go present yourself to the priest at the temple. And the, temp, the priest would meet you outside the gate. And he would inspect you. Right? And if he determined that you were clean, he would take two live birds, some hyssop, a cedar plank, and, 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 and an earthen vessel. And what he would do is he would slaughter the bird over running water. That's what he would do. And he would drain the blood into the vessel. Then he would put the hyssop, the wood in there. Then he would take the live bird. Don't ask me why. God can do what he wants to do, okay? It's strange to me too, but just track with me. It's what it says in Leviticus. I remember it. I don't know why, but I remember it. Then you would take the live bird and you dip it in the blood and the priest would sprinkle seven times the person with leprosy. And then they would let the live bird go. Lucky bird, amen? All right. Then what would have to happen is you would have to remain outside for seven days. You still couldn't go in. After, you were, after the blood was sprinkled, you had to shave your hair. You had to, to, to get rid of your clothes, shave clean, and you had to wait outside for seven days. Then what would happen is the priest would come back out on the seventh day. And if you were still cleansed, what he would do is he would make you shave everything again. And it literally says in Leviticus, you'd have to shave your eyebrows your hair, any place that there was hair on your body, you shaved it, and again, you washed your cleans, your clothes. That was the seventh day. And on the eighth day, you had to be anointed one more time. And what would happen on that anointing is that the, the priest would take blood, okay? I'm, I'm not making this up. I'm not making this up. He would take blood, and he would make an offering, and then he would take the blood, and he would put it on the right ear, on the thumb, and on the big toe, of the person, and after eight days, no leprosy, that process taking place, you were considered cleansed and could rejoin the people. It was a big deal back then. Here's why I tell you all that. Because 
10 go away. They're cleansed by Jesus, but the process isn't finished. So nine of them continue on in the process, but one goes back to Jesus and falls on his feet and says, I just got to say thank you for what you're doing right now. And in that moment, Jesus says, because of your faith, your sins are forgiven. Here's what I'm trying to get you to see, the failure to praise what God was doing right then, even though the process wasn't done, caused nine of them to miss out on the blessing of God. Church, don't miss the blessing of God by failing to praise God now, even though the task isn't finished yet. Because right now, you and I have some walls to stand on. Everything else might be a mess, but God is faithful today. How do you know it, Michael? His mercies are new every morning. We worship God for present faithfulness, even when the present circumstances may not be everything we want them to be. Here's the beauty of it. When we praise God for past faithfulness, when we worship God for present faithfulness, it will give us confidence now to worship God for future faithfulness. That's the third thing I want you to see this morning as they look at God's future faithfulness. I don't think I put the verses with it. The verses for this point is chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Let me, let me read it to you now. It says, at that time, The book of Moses was read publicly to the people. The command was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God because they did not meet the Israelites with food and water. Instead, they hired Balaam against them to curse them. But our God turned the curse into a blessing. And when they heard the law, they separated all those of mixed descent from Israel. So here's here's what's going on. As part of their worship in the present, they read from God's word once again. They read from the law. And in reading God's word, they are once again reminded that God has been faithful in the past. God is faithful in the present and God's going to be faithful in the future. But what we know is that they're clearly reading from Deuteronomy 23. Because that statement that God took a curse and made it a blessing comes from Deuteronomy 23, Pastor Jesse's favorite book of the Bible. And what they were reminded of is when the people of God were heading to the promised land. During that time, the Ammonites and the Moabites had an opportunity to bless the people of God by serving them food and water as they're traveling to the promised land. But... The Ammonites withheld food and water and they wouldn't serve God's people. The Moabites also withheld food and water and went so far as to hire the false prophet Balaam to curse the people of God because the Moabite king believed that if he could curse them, he could overtake them. It's a fascinating story. I'm not going to get into it. You can read the whole thing in Numbers 22. Go read Numbers 22 over lunch. Makes for great conversation. But what we learn in Deuteronomy 23 verses 3 through 5 is this. 
Deuteronomy 23 says, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the Lord's assembly. None of their descendants, even to the 10th generation, may ever enter the Lord's assembly. This is because they did not meet you with food and water on your journey after you came out of Egypt. And because Balaam, son of Beor, from Pethor in Anaramheim, was hired to curse you. Yet the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. But he turned the curse into a blessing for you. Here it is. Because the Lord your God loves you. And so God's faithfulness in the past pushes them to see God's faithfulness in the present. And then it encourages them to commit to future obedience. All because they believe that the God who, that they believe that God is still for them. They believe that God will continue to bless them in the future if they are faithful. So they commit to the Lord with a future hope that God will still be faithful to them. Here's what I'm trying to get you to see, church. They believe that God, that the God who was faithful and the God who is currently faithful is the God who will continue to be faithful. It makes sense, doesn't it? And so as an act of worship, they consecrate themselves. They set themselves apart for God and they seek to live for him moving forward. It's an act of worship in covenantal faithfulness. God's past faithfulness, church, God's present faithfulness is a testimony to you this morning that God's not going to abandon you. That God will still be faithful to you. And, and sometimes we just need that reminder because nothing can seem like it's going right. But if we can ever look back and see God's faithfulness in the past, if we got any wall to stand on right now, it is a testimony to us that we may not see it, we may not understand it, but God is still faithful to you. But church, let me, let me say one thing and I'm in my seat. I can't overlook that statement in verse 2. Nehemiah is making it way too easy for me to get to Jesus this morning, okay? What prompts this future faithfulness? What causes them to set themselves apart for future obedience? But our God turned the curse into a blessing. Now hear me, that's not just a statement about past faithfulness. That's not just a statement about present faithfulness. That is a reminder to them and a testimony of coming faithfulness. Because church, they've seen God turn a curse into a blessing before. They remember God taking the curse of a barren womb with Sarah and turning it into a blessing to the nations through Isaac. Through, through Isaac. They remember Joseph and God taking what the enemy meant for evil and God turning it for good. They saw God turn the curse of Balaam into a blessing. They know and believe that if God has done it before, then God will do it again. And this is good news because despite their worship, despite their praise, despite their rediscovery of the word of God and their love for the law and the covenant, Jerusalem is still under a curse. It's a curse that goes all the way back to the garden. A curse that was pronounced by God himself when Adam and Eve sinned. It brought with it pain and death and separation. And the people of God had experienced that separation in a real and a tangible way as a sign of this curse. In Genesis 3.18, God says that thorns will be produced from the ground. And the people of God believe that our God is a God who has and will continue to turn a curse into a blessing. And they were looking forward to the thing that we look back on. 
when Jesus took the curse and offered a blessing in its place. And we know he took the curse because the very evidence of the curse, the very thorns that came as a result of the curse are placed on his head. And nearly 2,000 years ago, with the crown of thorns on his head, Jesus walked up a hill called Calvary. And you know the story, but I'm going to say it again. And on that hill, they hung him high and they stretched him wide. They put nails in his hands. They put nails in his feet. They put a spear in his side and Jesus died on that cross. And hear me, just as Paul says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. But the story doesn't end there because three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And when he rose, he rose with all power in his hands. He rose with all authority in his hands. But I'll do you one better. He rose with a blessing in his hands. Christ took the curse of death and offers us the blessing of salvation. And truly, as Deuteronomy reminds us, he turned the curse into a blessing because the Lord your God loves you. And church, I'm just trying to tell you this morning that if God did all that, we have a reason to worship. We worship because God has been faithful. We worship because God is faithful today. And we continue to worship because God's going to be faithful tomorrow. And so let's worship. Let's go before him. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth that it contains, the truth that we believe that you are a faithful God. God, you were faithful yesterday. You are faithful today and you will be faithful tomorrow. And so God, no matter what's going on in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, I pray that we would cling to your faithfulness. And as a result, we would worship. Because we proclaim this morning that you and you alone are worthy of our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.